You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I'm going to be your somewhat sickly host, Abraham. And I'm going to be your, based on the topic, maybe your blue-skinned host, Shane? <laughs> nice. All yeah. right, welcome uh, welcome to our podcast. We're a psychology podcast most days, and we yeah. are uh, we like to talk about all kind of things psychology-related, particularly with a hard-edge science sort of view. Sometimes that means that we just sort of ramble about stuff, and sometimes we tell stories. Mm-hmm. Anyway, today, we're going to talk about a phenomenon of self-poisoning. Ah, Now, yes. important note, not suicide. Right. This is not at all about self-poisoning, specifically with the intention of that resulting in a fatal dose of poisoning, but self-poisoning with the intention of surviving the poison. Mm-hmm. I like that. And this is not um, self-poisoning by putting on a poison record and listening to Brett Michaels' vocals over and over and over again. That's not the type of self-poisoning we're talking about either. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Although I suppose that might fall into the category of what we're talking about, depending on yeah. how you think about 80s metal. I feel like if I were to show this to my dad, he would be like, he, he's like, yeah, no, I self-poisoned throughout the entire 70s and 80s. Like. <laughs> <laughs> nice. We should note that if you would like to watch us record these things, you can install malware on our computers such that you have access to webcams, or you could join us on Patreon. <laughs> please don't do the first one. Yeah, please um, don't poison our computers. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, on Patreon, you get access to early releases of episodes. We'll record videos of us recording episodes which we'll make available to our patreon supporters we can post our notes so you can see the kind of stuff that we read and did Mm -hmm. and all that sort of thing so if you'd like to support us you can join us there otherwise you could always leave a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcast episodes and ensure that you subscribe and and maybe like tell a friend and and that's another way you can support us if you want to join us on Patreon, that's great. I, and it's and we're super appreciative of that too. But even like a small review on whatever podcast device you're listening to or podcast you're listening to is super helpful. I mean, every review just boosts our appearance or gives us a little bit more reach. Fact. And if you can just give us those five stars, that would be great. If you want to give us four stars, you're allowed to, I guess, but we would be disappointed in you. <laughs> and it, clicking the five stars <laughs> feels so good. You're just like, oh man, that just made my whole day. And it takes like less than a second. Right. Yeah. Infinitesimally small amount of time. Also, if you leave a written review, we read them and I read it's them true. all the time. Somebody made fun of my Elmer Fudd laugh. <laughs> nice. Yeah. We've actually even read reviews on this podcast sometimes, occasionally, not super frequently, but you know, we it happens here and there. Yeah. Enough. Yeah. Flatter us enough. We'll, we'll probably make it. <laughs> <laughs> or say something really clever or funny, you know, that sort of yeah. thing. But maybe you don't want your comments read either way it's fine (laughs) help us out that's what we're saying help us out that's what we're asking yeah all right so this is going to be a short one mostly because we're sort of telling a short story and then understanding the context of this and how this applies to things that we do currently in life yeah and so let's dive in as they say yeah i think that's the word and the legend of mithridates or i've also found that it was pronounced mithridates depending on who you're talking to. Mm -hmm. And this is a person who lived roughly 130 or 120 to 63 BCE. And for those of you who are familiar with Roman history, 
Rome was notorious for citizens poisoning one another. Poison mushrooms, other similar concoctions. Uh-huh. There was this powder that they used that was arsenic triglyceride or something like that. It was an arsenic thing. Yeah. That was called the successor powder because it was so effective at, at poisoning people and was, I guess, described as being used to topple many rulers and that sort of thing. I also like the idea that it was like a big business, like thinking about like big box poison companies and stuff at the time and like like different poison stores. Like and then there's like conspiracy theorists that are like, yeah. of course, people are dying. It's big poison. Yep, that's exactly right. It was <laughs> you could you could go pick up your sort of low grade right off the shelf Walmart poison or they had their their Great Trader Joe's. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you, you either had your artisanal poisons or you're just your dollar store poisons. Your organic poisons, and during certain times of year, you'd also have pumpkin spice poison. So that's right, specifically. <laughs> yeah, that's so not unlike today, <laughs> not unlike today. Yes, absolutely. So people would poison their political rivals, family members who they didn't like, people that thought they were swindlers. There were all kinds of reasons. It was pretty much justified at any point in time. If I wanted to poison somebody, I could poison somebody, and I'm gonna do it. That's right. Now, we're still talking about Mithridates or Mithridates, but right now we're setting the context for the world in which he lived. And talking about Rome here and the prevalence of poison, there are some considerations to keep in mind about these rumors or these thoughts that Rome was this place of just everybody's killing everybody with poison. First, despite what is historically believed to be a widespread phenomenon, the fact or the idea that there's a lot of poisoning occurred, it was really attributed to women and slaves. Okay. These are the people who were not respected and didn't have any rights already. And they were the ones being accused of being the poisoners. Right. And this was fear mongering in service of classism, racism, and sexism. Basically it was often believed that women were unscrupulous adulterers. And so they were poisoning their husbands so that they could be with their new lovers. And so one source argued that in ancient Rome, calling someone an adulteress essentially meant calling a person a poisoner. So they were kind of one in the same. And if you think about it, it makes sense, right? Like these are, these are folks that are marginalized people that are technically oppressed in some, in some fashion right so they're trying to get out from under their oppressors so poisoning is an effective way to get out of it in a society that effectively and not to like misrepresent history or even really the romans but where you definitely had some clear examples of misogyny and a lot of generally to be expected infidelity among men infidelity among women was like so much worse that if they were they that they were the ones believed to just be doing it constantly poisoning everyone in their wake Right. And so that was sort of how that was described, which, of course, is just a bunch of sexism. Right. And not even not even ending there. There's more to understand about this poisoning thing. It is possible that a significant proportion of outbreaks of death that were attributed to poison. So people saying there was this huge rash of people dying. The adulteresses and slaves are added again, poisoning everyone around them. It was actually misunderstood epidemics of disease. And that that was actually ultimately the reason that there was all these deaths happening. But like so many things, when there is a lot of people dying, there is a scientific reasonable explanation like disease. Mm -hmm. And then there is a sexist, classist, racist explanation like they're all all these minority marginalized groups are causing it because they're bad. If you hadn't picked this up from our history, we have a long tradition as a species of blaming certain groups. 
specifically for diseases, right? We blame immigrants, like not we, uh, I should say, but like Americans will blame immigrants for bringing in diseases or even like drug epidemics and stuff like that when ultimately all the meth is made in Alabama. And we know that. <laughs> That's right. And so, yeah, we yeah we, we love to pick a group of people and blame them for something that's happening. Particularly, I found that the, the group that's actually committing the problem, they're the ones usually pointing the fingers. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and just sort of picking a target. So, all right. So we were talking about Mithridates. And the legend that we opened up with in this dialogue was about a boy who was destined to be the king of Pontus, which is in Asia, for those of you not familiar with your ancient historical geography. And he grew up in a household in which his mother was believed to have, or at least suspected of, poisoning his father, who was the king of Pontus, as would be the case. Now, as Mithridates was too young, I'm just going to stick with Mithridates for the rest of this. Yeah, if everyone's I feel cool like with that, that. That feels good. That okay, feels cool. good to me. Awesome. All right. So as, as he was too young to take the throne when his father passed, his mother was the acting ruler. She was pretty cool with this because she's like, think of the power you might call. Uh, <laughs> so she was the assistant to the regional monarch, you might say, for <laughs> U.S. office fan service there. But as as Mithridates grew older, he was becoming eligible to take over these ruling duties. And he started becoming afraid of being poisoned by his mother or his brother, who he believed wanted to prevent him from ascending to power so that they could keep it for themselves. And so in fear of that happening, he ran away from home. Yeah. So on his drifting travels, he was paranoid about poisoning and experimented with strategies to make himself immune to poison. Some involved drinking the blood of animals he had poisoned. And that subsequently died from the poisoning. So just kind of like a, almost like microdosing a little bit in this particular poison that he himself had enacted. And, you know, the thing is, is this idea, this, this being afraid of being poisoned is a legit thing that you'll see across like any sort of like monarchy or t you'll see this kind of always go on. That's why kings would have tasters right. who would taste food before food would arrive or like when it would arrive to make sure that the food had itself had not been poisoned because people were always fighting for the throne and it happened within families. So it makes sense that he had this, like this wasn't like an irrational fear for sure. This is a, a pretty legitimate fear for somebody in his position. And so they tried to do some things like drink blood. Interesting note about the tasters that I've always wondered about. And I didn't look into in researching this topic, but it's a really good point that you raise is most poisons don't act fast enough for you to, to for that to make any amount of sense. Right. Like they would have right. to have eaten the food like the day before to be able to actually demonstrate that it was safe to eat. Like there are very few poisons that are that. And I think if you were trying to poison a monarch, you would know that and specifically choose one that wasn't fast acting so that it wouldn't be caught by their tasters. Right. Assuming they had any. And so anyway, that was just the thing I thought that was sort of like, it seems like a totally pointless practice. I think what ultimately happened is that there was someone who got like a ton of like super fresh, really good free food. And they're like, this is the job that I want <laughs> and the job that I'm, <laughs> I'm going to strive to have and yeah. good on them. Yeah. Or they were forced into it. Or they're forced into it's it. Like, yeah. It's like, if you don't be my taster, I will take all of your land and make sure your family does not, your genetic line does not continue. Yeah. And then the taster got really <laughs> fat. All yeah. right. Just to be clear, when you said he sort of poisoned the animals and then drank their blood, Mithridates was not the one that died. It was the animals that died because yes. you know, he poisoned them and it was delight diluting it by, by putting in their blood and doing vampire things. But yeah, essentially with his experimenting with this, he kind of became like a scientist of poisons and definitely became a super expert 
and poisons. He studied the effects of poisons. He carefully measured his doses. He took copious notes on the results and his dosing and that sort of thing. And he learned to, to administer poisons, at least to himself, in sort of the service of understanding poisons and dosing. Yeah, so although it's, it's highly unlikely that he himself invented the practice itself, he also started microdosing poison cocktails. So that is, he took a bunch of poisons, but at such low doses that they weren't actually harming him, not in any significant way. And then he gradually increased the dosage over time. And you'll see people do this. Like you'll hear people talk about microdosing acid now and stuff like that, or mushrooms. You know, people will do that for like experimenting with drugs, but people will do this for this type of this thing here where he's, he's kind of trying to slowly build a tolerance to poison. So as his body habituated to the poisons, he would again increase the dose. So he was no longer feeling sick. He could take the poison, wouldn't feel ill, and then would would then just make sure that he took a little bit more next time. And with enough exposure, his body would tolerate levels of poisoning that would be easily fatal to a sort of non-enlightened individual. <laughs> so real quick, Abraham, what, what does habituated mean? And I'm going to say that in the Forky Toy Story 4 tone. What is habituated? A great vocabulary. Yeah, <laughs> habituated is, you know, used in context, I think I tried, so it sort of spells out here, but it really just means a decreasing response to the same presentation of some kind of stimulus or event or substance. Like, let's say, for example, a particular noise in your environment, if you habituate to it, it means your reaction to it and your noticing of it decreases over time as you sort of tune it out, fade it out, if you will. Yeah. And that's the, that's also the case here is just sort of his reaction to the, the poison titrated downward over time. And so that's that's what habituated means. It's a good word. I always use the example of like, I grew up in a house where a train would go by the back of my house mm -hmm. and every time it would come through, it'd go bah, bah, really loud. And when we right. first moved in, it was very, it was horrifying Yeah, because the whole house would shake too. And then the longer I live there, I don't even notice it. I'm 35 now. And when I go to my parents' house, like I don't even notice that it's going by. Yeah. Super. That's a super good example. And, and one of the more common ones I think often cited is people who live in sort of noisy areas and they just get used to it and that getting used to it is a habituation piece. Yeah. Cool. Very good. I don't ever want to be in a position where I have to get used to poison, though. <laughs> well, maybe maybe if life circumstances lead you there, you would want to be in that position. Yeah, I guess it's fair. I guess, I guess it's all context, right? It all depends. Are you planning to be the king of Pontus anytime soon? I mean, I have talked about getting knighted. There is a process for <laughs> Americans to get knighted. So fair. it's it's, you know, it's on the way. It's okay. on the way. All right. So, maybe. I mean, I think Sir Dr. Professor Spiker sounds good. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Maybe you're on this path. Probably not. Yeah. Though. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, hopefully not. So apparently he became rather a rather skilled wartime technician as well. So, of course, as an expert on poison, he also likely used this knowledge to secretly attack his enemies, which is like total espionage type of thing. Sure. And there's a story that may that he may have been the first leader to use chemical warfare by poisoning an invading Roman army. So this guy, he's got a body count. Yeah, so he was really concerned about Rome sort of coming over and taking over Pontus as one of the last holdouts against against Roman rule. Anyway, th so there's the story again, maybe true, maybe legend, who knows. There is something very real in the story. So first of all, there are these Caucasian bees who collect pollen from rhododendron flowers. But the pollen that's collected from rhododendron flowers creates a toxic honey. This honey is called Delibal in modern Turkish or translates to mad honey 
if you take this in, in relatively small doses, it'll cause diarrhea, vomiting, hallucinations, disorientation, and then in some cases it can be fatal. And so there's the story of this of Mithridates essentially leaving out these just sort of casually planting these jars of honey, Dilly Ball or the Mad Honey, along the path of the marching Roman army. They happen across these jars of honey and they eat it and become violently ill. And this sounds so much like like a Tom and Jerry cartoon or like itchy and scratchy cartoon. You know, it's yeah, it's so dumb. Like, and you think about it, like, it's like I found a jar of honey. I go, ooh, a jar of honey. I'm going to eat this like wild jar of honey. Exactly. Yeah. They were just, they just happened along these jars and they're like, someone left all this honey here. <laughs> Score, guys. Let's have lunch. I also, I also really like the idea of Caucasian bees because all I think of them is going to art markets during the, during the winter and like being <laughs> really stoked about pumpkin spice. <laughs> that's, that's probably why they're called Caucasian bees. It's like, Oh, I really did you see my new dream catcher? <laughs> nice. <laughs> I like it. So, <laughs> oh man. So the legend goes on to speculate that as the Romans geared up to conquer Pontus, Mithridates began to fear that there was no possible victory or viable chance for escape. So Mithridates decided death was a be- was better than capture, and as an expert on poison, and not a particularly creative person, he decided to poison himself and his daughters by taking massive quantities of poison. So he is on his way out. That's what he's trying to do. Yeah. And his daughters died instantly because they took massive quantities of poison. However, he had built up his tolerance so high that he not only didn't die, he instead ended up only feeling a little weak and out of sorts. And so because he felt like there was no way to to die from poisoning, he did get a little creative, you know, when forced to do so, one one will do so. He asked someone to kill him in the more traditional way, which is a sword to the face. Yeah, I mean, that's that's usually like that's what I would ask for. That's in my will. Yeah, you're like, I was ready to die and this just isn't happening. So grab that sword over there, please. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, this is entirely apocryphal. Don't know how much of this is actually true, but that's sort of how the legend goes and where we get to our understanding of this this thing from Mithridates. Yeah, so it's from this practice of ingesting small, relatively harmless quantities of poison that we get the eponymous Mithridatism. And you'll see there's a lot of examples of this. Uh, We'll talk more about that later that you'll see kind of in pop culture. And you've probably already seen this happen in one of your favorite movies. But this is where it comes from. Yeah, exactly right. So the whole thing that we're talking about really today mostly was the legend. But the whole point was in service of this concept of Mithridatism, which is over time taking gradually increasing doses of several types of poison, therefore resulting in the body having an increased capacity to tolerate level of that poison that would kill someone who did not have such a tolerance. And that's, that's the whole thing. And there's actually an analogous way that we kind of do this with a lot of things in our life. Yeah, and that would be like self-immunization. So there are a couple of important notes here on terminology as we kind of get into this, though. This isn't really building an immunity. So like what we're doing here is we're building a tolerance more than anything. Right. When we build an immunity to a disease, that disease cannot kill us even with high exposure, right? So with poisons, a substantial enough dose is still effective to kill someone. So a more precise term to describe it, it this here is, is as resistance or tolerance, right? So we have a higher tolerance to these types of poisons that would normally kill mortal men that are not me. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Or me. Or me. In case <laughs> this isn't clear from anything we're saying, the practice of Mithridatism is real and it does actually work. Like this is something that people can use effectively. However, 
extremely strong PSA. This is extremely dangerous and not something you should try at home or do just because you're like, oh, yeah, I would like to be immune to poison. Sure. (laughs) You really need to be (laughs) like if you're going to pursue this, like find a professional, use assistance with the like work with your healthcare providers, whatnot. Do not try and just, you know, randomly inject poisons to make yourself immune. That is a horrible, terrible idea. And I'm telling you not to do it. Just to be clear, yeah. uh, I second that. Please do not go poison yourself. Uh, I can't imagine you're going to go to your your primary care physician and be like, "Hey, I got a real arsenic fear right now. Uh, I'm going to need to. I'm going to go ahead and need to microdose this." And they're going to be like, "What are you talking about? You need to go talk to a therapist." Like, you don't don't go do this. But there are also a lot of examples that we do this in other areas that you might not realize that people already actively do this. So it's one of those things where, you know, on like when you talk about the more extreme, which is like, I don't want to be poisoned by my enemies. So I'm going to go and engage in this. That's one thing, but there are common everyday things that we do that are a a form of Mithridatism. Yeah. The important thing on this really too is, is the, the dosing is so critical. Because you you need to know, understand what amount of a dose is going to be definitely fatal. Because like arsenic, for example, it takes next to nothing, like two little globules of arsenic, the size of a couple of grains of sand is enough to kill a full grown adult. Yeah. And so you <laughs> like you don't want to you need like homeopathic levels of that stuff to start building a tolerance if you're going to do it. So you might be like, Oh, I'll just take this little tiny vial there. I'm like, no, that would kill 50 people. Like, don't take that. Yeah. There's a playground in our, in our city that they found arsenic in the dirt. They had to like redo the entire playground, but they basically said it wasn't enough to kill anybody. It was like, there were traces of it in order to die from it. You'd have to eat a wheelbarrow full of dirt. So I know there was at least one kid that did do that. Oh, good. They, uh, I mean, maybe I would assume that there's a kid that ate a wheelbarrow full of dirt. We all knew kids that ate dirt. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That makes sense. All right. Anyway, so we were talking about the practice of Mithridatism in real life and some examples of that. One that you might not think about initially is alcohol. Mm. Alcohol is just poison, albeit a poison that has a very specific effect on our brains. So when people drink a lot of alcohol, they actually, as many people know, will build up quite a tolerance to the amount of alcohol they consume. That doesn't mean it's not still poisoning them. It is. But the effect that it has on their overall reaction to it diminishes with repeated exposure. And so you build up a sort of threshold of tolerance to a certain amount of toxic dosage such that there is still a like you'll never get to the point where no amount of alcohol will kill you. But you will get to a point where enough that would kill someone who does not have that level of tolerance will only make you very drunk. Yeah. I mean, if I drank a fifth of whiskey, I would get sick. Yeah. And I would die. Yeah. And there you go. Like, <laughs> but like, for other people, that's like a, that's like a, that's a breakfast. <laughs> that's true. And also, too, it's important to note that like stuff like that, like different poisons have different interactions in your body with different food. It's like, so there's all these other things. It's not just about dosage. There are other factors that might contribute to the potency of whatever poison you're putting in your body. Absolutely. Very good point. So another one, too, allergies. Right. So folks who have allergies might do like some very small exposures to things that make them sick or trigger allergic reactions. You'll see this time like you'll hear like kind of the remedies, too. And and I I don't know how much weight this holds, but I've heard this where if you eat honey that's made with pollen, like local pollen, honey that's like produced within 50 miles of where you live and it's got those same kinds of pollens that that do trigger those reactions. Like if you eat that, that tends to help with your allergies long term. I've heard that as well. And, you know, sort of the joke being it's it's like match.com. You get a local honey. (laughs) 
<laughs> never heard that. That's good. <laughs> I don't know how clear the science is on all of that, but right. it does make some amount of intuitive sense at least. And at least it's probably not terribly harmful. And I actually have known some people who were deathly allergic to certain things and they, their doctor, whoever, whatever an allergist person is essentially put them through a regimen of systematic desensitization to the thing at which they're allergic. Yeah. And over time they went from being like, they would go into anaphylactic shock if they walked into a state that contained that thing that they're allergic to. Yeah. Like a United States state. <laughs> but then they got to the point where they could actually consume it in small amounts and they wouldn't even have a reaction just through that continuing represencing of that. And to them, it wasn't, it's not technically actually talk like it's not an actual toxin, right? But their bodies reacted to it as if it were. But it's a very similar process of building a tolerance to that substance. Yeah, absolutely. Another one, and very similar to this, is how people are often treated for anxieties and phobias, which is that whatever the triggering situation is, they are placed in a sort of safe version of it. Sometimes as simple as just talking about it. So you might have someone who's horribly afraid of heights. And say, let's talk about like the top of a building. And if you can talk about like if they're if they're at that level, you know, if you can talk about, okay, you can imagine that you're looking down over the building and you can see all the way down and the and the person is like, okay, I feel like I'm at like a four out of 10 on anxiety or a nine out of 10, you know, whatever it is, just with that repeated practice, eventually the reaction gets lower and lower. And then you can do like, let's do a virtual reality simulation. Let's like go on a place where I'm going to put you, I'm going to put you on a ladder that's a foot off the ground and I'm going to put you on a harness that's attached to a steel I beam so that even if you were to fall, you would fall less than a half of an inch and you'd be fine. And there, there's just re-presencing. And that's how a lot of treatment for many phobias and anxiety disorders go is just this systematic continuing representing very similar to this idea of mithridatism your microdosing fear which would be a really cool album name that rules so <laughs> i i love see you know you you know what we need to do this is gonna be your quick sidebar you and i need to start a fiver where all we do is we just charge people for coming up with really awesome names for things. Like, oh, you need a metal album name? I've got one for you. Oh, you need a name for a food truck? Good. I've got Optimus Prime Rib. Where there we go. We're we're gonna we're golden. That sounds like fun. Yeah, it would be fun. We could charge like five bucks a name. It's great. Nice. That's a new Patreon tier. <laughs> <laughs> Patreon tier. That's great. I love that. <laughs> so uh, another one, another thing that people do is they do this with exercise, right? Like yeah. nobody is born running a marathon. Like you have to exactly gradually right. shape that up, right? Like you have to like really work that up because the first person that ran a marathon died. That's the story, right? <laughs> so what you do is you gradually shape up that behavior. Like that's where people like slowly start lifting larger weights, heavier weights. They engage with activity longer periods of time. They can plank longer. They can do more pull-ups. But it starts with small incremental steps towards that larger terminal goal. And furthermore, with that one too, is the the amount of soreness that you feel. Like something, like if I were to attempt even like a third of an exercise that someone who goes to the gym on a daily basis, Uh I wouldn't be able to move for like four days. Yeah. That would be so sore. So you recover more quickly with, uh, with repeated practice of those things. 100%. Another one that's very relevant to me is spicy food. Mm -hmm. A lot of cultures, spicy food is just built into their normal diet. And so they tolerate really high levels of spice because that's how they flavor things. And someone who comes from maybe I don't know, a Western U.S. diet, for example, might try it and then their mouth is on fire because they can't handle it. And I got really into the idea of being able to 
to tolerate spicy foods when I was very young. And so I ate a lot of spicy foods and have continued to do so. Mm-hmm. And I love spicy food. And I know that's, that's, there's a lot of people for whom that's true, right? They yeah. specifically wanted to build a tolerance to it. I will taste something that has spice in it and I'll say, this isn't spicy and someone else will eat it and they'll go, Oh God, give me, give me water. Give me milk. <laughs> I'm also, I'm not like extreme. I'm not, you know, I'm not sucking on Carolina Reapers just for the, you know, the thrill of it. It's just, I, I think my spice level is slightly higher than average relative to some people. And there are many people who are way above where I'm at, but I really enjoy spicy food. Yeah. I have a, I have a supervisee who's like their favorite food to make is the stew from Nigeria that like that they used to make when they were kids. And they were like, we have to special order scotch bonnet peppers. And I was like, and she, and she's like, that's, that's like my favorite food. I'm like, if I ate a scotch bonnet pepper, I would literally die. <laughs> Like I would literally, I could not handle that, but I, but I, I get it. Like where it's like, I like spicy food too. So you kind of like build that up. Yeah. There's that Simpsons episode where they were trying to have like the spiciest chili for Homer. Oh yeah. The insanity peppers. Yeah. He touches one and like goes into this like hallucinating alternate reality. <laughs> yeah. Was, he goes on his vision quest. Yeah. That was very funny. <laughs> it's so good. So people do this with other foods too, right? Like as somebody who does not like diet soda, I would have to learn how to do this because I can't stand the taste of aspartame. But like, <laughs> like swirling it around in like a cup full of water, or just like a little shot of it. <laughs> yeah, it's like just yeah, just it's just I got a microdose diet coke to get used to it. Like we we were just kind of using examples of uh, gefilte fish, which is like or like stinky cheeses, like foods that are like have very potent smells or very strong tastes. Yeah, it may be difficult to consume that the first time. That you try it, but over time, the smaller doses and the smaller kind of chunks that you take, the better, the the easier it's going to be for you to 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 eat it. Exactly, and this all of this actually is very important in understanding why medical dosing is so critically important. Uh, when people take antibiotics, just a sort of a background thing, like yeah, I'll just pop an antibiotic. What then ends up happening is that you build resistant, like bacteria start becoming resistant to this drug that's happening in low enough forms that it, it doesn't kill them. So what you're essentially doing is practicing mithridatism with your bacteria that's trying to kill you. That's the whole idea of these like super bugs that people have talked about. It's it's because of of dosing or if you do the, the whole spaced out vaccine regimen. So. The spacing of vaccines is determined through a scientific process of looking at under what conditions do we see the most effective result from vaccines. And science does not back up spacing out vaccines beyond the prescribed schedule. And so people will be like, well, I'm not anti-vax. I just want to have them spaced out, which is like I want to reduce my immunization from like 90 percent to like 40 percent or less. Right. And so that's it's also a dangerous place to have because what you're doing is you're not necessarily doing like forcing your body to build up the kind of antibodies and immunization that it needs to be to successfully compete with a uh, a virus instead you're doing like here's a small amount of immunization and now here's another small amount way too late in the future and so your body's like oh I kind of think I may vag- vaguely remember that and then it doesn't do a very good job when it actually encounters the disease. And so, the, again, this is why dosing is so critically important in medicine. Yeah. I mean, and this is this is like nice and simple stuff, right? I mean, like when you when it makes sense, when you think about it, it's like like whenever you study any sort of medicine at all, there's these terms uh, you'll hear lethal dose and you'll hear right. therapeutic dose. 
So yeah. therapeutic doses are usually what they aim for. When you're taking psychiatric meds, you can overdose on all of those psychiatric meds, but there is a therapeutic dose or therapeutic level that they try to reach. And so this is a lot of what we're talking about. Maybe some things like some of this is going a little bit beyond that therapeutic level that is like kind of towing the line towards a lethal dose, but it's not quite a lethal dose yet. That's And that's really what we're doing here. Sure. So snake handlers also do this. And this doesn't mean that every single snake handler does this. I imagine the people that like breed ball pythons do not try to dose venom, but right. for snake handlers that like actually handle snakes that do have high potency venom, what they will do is they will microdose this a little bit. They'll, they'll gradually expose themselves to these poisons where and you'll see people get bit by king cobras and be more resistant to it. Again, right. they're not likely to survive, but what might happen is they have a longer period of time for that venom to do the damage it would need to do to take that person out. The snake handlers are maybe the closest example to what we're specifically talking about with mithridatism, which is like what they will do is specifically inject venom into their veins in small doses to build up a resistance and tolerance to, to that venom. And that's like a legitimate practice like that, as you said, not all of them, but some people, particularly those who handle a lot of uh, high venom snakes will do this. And and that, that can at least help prevent super fatal bites. Now, there is also um, I've, I've heard several things about this. I didn't check into them necessarily, but I've heard that, first of all, poison is extremely metabolically expensive for snakes. So they're not actually going to or the, using their venom is so they're not actually going to use their venom unless they're like actively trying to kill you, which when it's defense is not always the case. A lot of times they're just trying to get you away from them. So they might use a small amount enough to make you sick or none at all just to hurt you with their teeth because it does not feel good to have two or four gigantic super thick needles going into your flesh nope um, nope especially yeah. like suddenly you're not prepared for it yeah yeah exactly and so and they aim for sensitive spots like your neck and your face and things of that nature so um so there's that the other one i've heard is that young snakes aren't super good at like regulating this and so they're more likely to use higher doses of venom again i didn't look into whether or not that's true but it does make a certain amount of sense that you know sort of like how kids just run around all the time burning energy like crazy <laughs> that these young snakes are just sort of like all the venom and, <laughs> and <checked laughs> you get the full dose that's right anyway some interesting stuff there uh, interestingly so this mithridatism has also been used for helping to develop anti-venom specifically with people who who practice mithridatism i found a a source of there's one guy in particular who like has <laughs> spent like 30 years building up tolerance to this that they uh, started using his blood to develop anti-venoms rather than the venom itself because his blood has the antibodies already in it and so they can more or less imitate those and replicate those antibodies specifically rather than trying to sort of make up something that counteracts the effects of a venom, which is which is kind of cool. And so that's that's another way it's been used. Now, as a side note, there was a source that I found that indicated that you can drink snake venom because it's not a poison, it's a venom, and that the enzymes in your stomach will actually break down the harmful medicines. But I mean, if you had like an open wound in your mouth or your throat or your stomach, then the poison will get into your bloodstream and then kill you. I'm not recommending that anybody drink snake venom ever. <laughs> yeah, Don't yeah. do it. <laughs> but if for some reason that was something you had to do, I'm given this source at least claimed that it would not be harmful to you unless it got into your bloodstream somehow. Yeah, again, I back up that don't please don't drink 
Please do not drink venom. I mean, not just snake venom, any venom. Don't drink any venom. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's all. Yeah, don't even drink the symbiote venom. It's just just bad news. So <laughs> it's all bad news. And not just even for the reason of like the fact that like it could be extremely dangerous and not probably a good idea and it ha- probably has no nutritional benefits really. But also from the fact that like they have to get that that by specifically like squeezing the glands of snakes to get out of them. So it's just like it's mean to snakes. And it's totally unnecessary and it has no benefits and it's just dumb. So just don't. Yeah, we're we're outspoken um, anti-whacking day people here at the at why we do what we do. If you've ever seen that episode of the Simpsons where they have yeah. whacking day where they just go hit the snakes. Yeah, and that weird out has a whole song about that. Yeah, yeah. We're anti-whacking day. So be nice to the snakes. We yeah. need them. Anti like explicit harm all the time in general. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So there are some pop culture examples of this. And we say pop culture, but there's also kind of like a historical precedent for some of this too. And the first one we want to talk about is Rasputin. So if you're not familiar with Rasputin, he was kind of a, the best way I could describe is he was kind of a sketchy dude. He did some stuff that was not so great, but there is the kind of the legend that he was unkillable. And so there's the story where he gathered with some people that tried to poison him. They put arsenic in like literally everything that he was eating and drinking that night. And all it did was make him kind of drunk. So they had to stab him and shoot him and drop him into a frozen river to kill him. So it, it was one of those things where, you know, he kind of had this like mysticism about him that he was like, you know, had deals with the devil and he was immortal. But the failed poisoning, it, it suggested that he knew that he was always in danger. So he kind of microdosed a little bit so that he could, in the event of poisoning, not run into an issue. So that's kind of that's one of the stories. He was like, the arsenic didn't kill him. It just made him drunk. Right. Yeah. There's also the popular example in Princess Bride, where uh, Wesley, the hero of the story, uh, is meeting with Vizini, Vizini, I think is how it's pronounced, with who's Wallace Shawn. And it's a great inter- ex- exchange, right? So, like, you've got Fezzik, who is Andre the Giant. He's, like, the big muscle and really right. funny. But then you've got Vizini, who is, like, the one that's, like, the intellectual, and they're playing word games, and they keep switching the drinks back and forth. And then what ends up happening is they both take the drink, and Vizini dies because he's poisoned because Wesley had already microdosed and had been had developed a tolerance to the poison that was in the drinks. So he had actually poisoned both drinks and was able to tolerate the drink. Yeah, the whole thing was, yeah, like which, you know, choose which cup one of them has poison. And then so the guy, the guy dies and he said they were both poisoned. <laughs> yeah, really fun movie. Yeah. So those are yeah two two good examples. Now, the Rasputin one is is disputed. It's you know another apocryphal story. Who knows if it's true? Uh, the Count of Monte Cristo, there was a whole thing in in that story where the Count takes like this poison cream at breakfast or something so that he micro, he also is microdosing this poison so that he does not suffer the effects of it. Uh, so that was a, a point in there. Agatha Christie novel, if you're into like old mysteries, there was the book called The Mysterious Affair, also had a plot line using Mithridatism. Uh, with someone who self-poisoned so it's you know it's it's a not uncommon plot device to use particularly in things like mysteries and adventures and you've got heroes and high risk stakes sort of things yeah it's it'd be, li- it'd be like in the deer hunter if uh if robert de niro's character had somehow made themselves immune to bullets and so he'd, <laughs> it didn't matter if he played <laughs> the russian roulette game you know also, I don't think humans can make themselves immune to bullets. <laughs> no, 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 that one's. No, and I'm also, just being don't silly. try that. Yeah, definitely don't try that. Yeah, I'm just being silly. That's yeah. uh, that's a nonsense example. So as far as talking about the why, the actual why of this, we've already mentioned like there are some practical reasons, but I think speaking loosely, this is there's the fear of death and the potential for protection from harm. Like that's sort of the why right. in a sort of 
loose speaking way of describing it. Yeah. And non-language using animals are very unlikely to do something like this, especially systematically. They're not going to be planning and and kind of doing all that. But because we have language, we can talk about things that have not yet happened. And so we can actually plan ahead and we can reason and prepare for things that non-language using animals might not be able to do. Yeah. and, And this ability to behave with respect to hypothetical circumstances that may or may not occur, it provides flexibility in, in our in our actions to do things like make plans and anticipate outcomes for better or for worse. So if we value living and have some kind of description available to us about the relative possibility of a fatal outcome from something such as a poison, then we might choose to inject and consume toxic agents to prevent this hypothetical fate. Again, don't do it. Unless you think you're going to be in a situation where you're going to be poisoned, then go ahead and consult with the appropriate people to make sure that's done well and it's not done fatally. But we just strongly recommend not doing this in general so that you don't die. I really wonder if like U.S. presidents actually do practice Mithridatism. I wonder if that's like what the, the gray hair practice. is. <laughs> that, yeah, and that's what it is. They always look like 100 years older when they come out of that job, except yeah. Joe Biden, who will look exactly the same. Probably more hair. <laughs> and it's maybe because of Mithridatism. So. There is a really fun video I'm linking to in the show notes of this by on a, a channel on YouTube called Minute Earth. And they sort of talk about how the difference between something that is just you know neutral, something that is medicinal, and something that is poison really is the dose. And they use a metaphor of like a bathtub, like our body has a bathtub. And if that bathtub overflows, then we die from the level of toxicity. So like, for, for example, water can become toxic if you drink it in enough volume, but our bathtub, the size of the bathtub we have in our bodies for water is so large that we're more likely to just pee it out before we reach that level. Not that it can't happen. You 100% can. And people have died. Actually, more people have died from overhydration than dehydration in the last year. So it's, it's definitely possible. Another one's like coffee. Like if you drink an espresso, if you just do that like 86 more times, you'll reach toxic levels of caffeine in your body. Cause our bathtub for espresso is much smaller. Yeah. I also learned that the water that like your urine doesn't come from drinking water. It comes from your blood. So everything that you're peeing out has been filtered through from your blood. Fun. <laughs> blood water is why you don't drink urine. Yeah. Among other reasons. So yeah, the, the idea, this really fun video they talk about, they give examples of like, you know, our, our bathtub for arsenic is extremely small. Like it takes almost nothing to overflow that bathtub. So anyway, it's just a fun video on that. But, uh, but yeah, so that's, that's sort of what we got on the why and understanding those things. Everything else on that? No, I don't. I mean, I think, I think at the end of the day, this is just like one of those fun things. It's like, you see, you've heard people talk about it at some point in time and it's an interesting phenomenon and, and it's interesting to know that there is a way to do it, but that it's dangerous and you shouldn't. Most of our listeners will have like heard of the idea of something like this, and now you know it's called Mithridatism and why it's called Mithridatism. Uh-huh. Yeah, but, Mithridates. He was just a little bit weak, and then well, and the poison didn't work, so he took a sword to the face. That's right. That's right. So yeah, the Mithridatism, the whole thing is just, as as my take-home point, I guess, if you leave here with nothing else, is uh, taking small amounts of poison to, to, to create a tolerance, or more or less forcing your body to habituate to something that would otherwise be harmful. Yep, absolutely. Okay. But I mean, it's mostly designed specifically with respect to poison. That was the where the term comes from. Absolutely. All right. Shall we move on to some recommendations? Let's do it. Recommendations. I am thrilled <laughs> to recommend <laughs> this movie that came out recently called Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. This is the new Marvel property. Um, man, this movie was so well done. This rocketed to the like top of my list for Marvel movies. And here's the thing about this too. 
for many people, I think entry into, into the Marvel Cinematic Universe can feel a little daunting because there's like 23 or 24 movies now. And you might look at that and be like, I don't know that I want to take on that big of a storyline. Shang-Chi has almost no reference to the other movies. They're like Easter eggs and stuff that's in there that like you would get a reference that was sort of a thing that happened in the background or in this one scene that doesn't actually affect the movie that are necessary. But for the most part, you could watch this movie having never seen another Marvel movie and totally be able to follow the story. And it is just so extremely well done. I loved it tremendously. I strongly recommend it. Awesome movie. Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. I 100% back this recommendation because it is so good. It is really so good. Like it's like it's done so well. What they do with the rings, like the rings, like they feel impactful. They feel like they hit hard. Like it's really, really cool. I, I am like all for it. Yeah, it's rad. All right. My recommendation this week is a book. It's called Hey Ho, Let's Go, the Story of the Ramones, nice. which is like a really fun, like, like dig into this band. What's very fascinating about this band, if you've ever listened to the Ramones, is that they really only put out like three really great records. Maybe four, if you want to count Road to Ruin, which is like the the one with let uh, I want to be sedated on it. Mm-hmm. But they were a band for 22 years, and for most of the time, Johnny and Joey didn't talk. They weren't even friends. So there's this really interesting dynamic in the band where they treated it like a business and sure. they ran it like a business, and they were highly successful for it. Fun, interesting facts from this book: they were bigger than the Rolling Stones in Brazil. Like they are a more famous band than the Rolling Stones in Brazil. Wow. And a few things like that. It's a really fascinating story. And it's got some cool interviews and it just talks about where they came from and that there's actually seven Ramones, not four. So people mm-hmm. thought there were only four. There's also CJ, Elvis, and Marky, who was like one of the new ones. But but like the four originals are no longer with us, but it's a really interesting uh, read into this band, which is like you wouldn't think that they were as that there was as much depth to this band as you as you might realize. And everybody loves Joey, so rest in peace, Joey Ramon. Man, you have like an encyclopedic knowledge of band biography books. Yeah, it's weird. I'm just fascinated with bands. I think it's just really interesting. That's great. And I love it. Yeah, it's good stuff. All right, if you practice Mithridatism, if you would like to tell us about a recent Marvel movie that you enjoyed or a book about punk bands that you like or even any 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 bands that you want to talk about, or you want to remind us of a, a story that we missed in Mithridatism and pop culture or correct us on something that we said, please reach out to us. You can contact us on social media and on all the other platforms. You can email us directly at info at www.podcast.com. And uh, the, you can also go to that website to find out more about this and other episodes that we've recorded. Quick side note, actually, one of our Patreons reached out and uh, informed us of a zombie property we totally missed. Or vampire property we totally missed when we were talking about vampires in this this year's Halloween episodes, which was the Underworld movies. Oh, how do we miss those? Uh, that's what I was thinking. I was like, oh man, <laughs> that was so silly. So, so much leather, so much Lincoln Park, and I, but I, like, I really <laughs> like the I, I really do like the idea that like there's vampires fighting werewolves. Like that that feels good. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Those are fun movies. So if we miss something about uh, about <laughs> vampires or werewolves or mithridatism, you should definitely reach out to us. This podcast is made possible by a group of very special people that I love. And that group includes our Patreon supporters, which is Amanda, Justin, Justine, Kostia, Layla, Megan, Mike M, Mike T, and Shauna. Thank you all very much for your support. 
and continued contributions to helping us keep this thing going. Also to the team who makes this happen, Justin, Amber, Britt, Selena, Kyle, Allen, and so much to you, Shane, for recording with me and all of the work that you do. And all the work that you do. You got to give yourself some credit on this too. It's, it, it, this is, you're the captain of the ship. <laughs> Indeed. And of course, <laughs> thank you so much to our listeners. So for tuning in and making it all the way to the end and for leaving us that five-star review that you're going to do after you finish uh-huh. this. So uh, cool. Is there anything else you got? Nope. That's going to be it. Perfect. This is Abraham. And it's a Shane. We're out. See ya. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at WWD Podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.